I had the privilege of getting to open up God's word with you uh, this morning. We're going to take a break from Hosea. Uh, we've been in Hosea now for about a month, and Rob just said, hey, let's take a break for Palm Sunday and for Easter. So that's kind of a time where we, some people call it Holy Week, some people call it Passion Week, but kind of the seven days that start with Jesus entering Jerusalem, um, with what's called the Triumphal Entry or Palm Sunday, um, and then it culminates with the cross uh, on, on Friday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And so I was totally cool with that because Hosea, if you've been with us, is a crazy book. And so I was like, yeah, I'm totally cool if I just get to do the triumphal entry. But seriously, like, we'll be back in Hosea in a couple weeks. It's going to be great. But in the meantime, today, we're going to just kick off basically a seven-day focus um, on Jesus' final week. And I was just kind of thinking as we were getting prepped for this, of, it's like, why for the past 1,000, 2,000 years have Christians taken a week and to stop whatever they were doing and really to focus in um, on Jesus' triumphal entry um, on, on his crucifixion and resurrection. And, and I'm kind of, I think it'd be helpful to put it like this. Just follow me for a few minutes. Um, when we're talking about existence, so like all of creation, the universe, there's really one of two options, okay? Either it came about intentionally or randomly. That's really it. I, either existence is here because a creator intentionally created it or it's just randomly here, okay? Let me put it maybe a different way. Um, a creator, it's either this, either a creator created something out of nothing or something randomly came from nothing. Either someone created something out of nothing or something just came out of nothing. And those are our two choices. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. Both of those things require you to take a leap of faith. Okay, I just want to say that out loud. <laughs> so it takes a leap of faith to believe that someone created something from nothing, but it almost, in my opinion, takes a bigger leap of faith to believe that something just randomly sprang from nothing, because we don't see that anywhere else in, in our lives or in creation that that happens. So there are two choices. Now, here's the thing. If something randomly came from nothing, then you know what? At the end of the day, live however you want. Do whatever you want. Live your truth, speak your truth, do whatever you want to do that makes you happy. Because it's random and you don't really have to answer to anybody. Just you do you, do whatever you want to do. But if this world, if this universe came about because a creator intentionally created it, well then at that point the creator had a purpose for the creation, which means he also has a purpose for you. And, and really what's happening is the creator is telling and creating a story that you're a part of. And so if your life is going to be meaningful, You've got to put your story, your life, into the bigger story that's happening. And what we believe as Christians is that that story is ultimately found here. That the Bible is the authoritative retelling of the story that God is telling in history. Uh, the Bible is not a random assortment of philosophical truths um, and religious jargon. Really what it is, is it records God's acts and his speaking in history. And what he has done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he will ultimately do in the future. And if you don't know a lot about the story, let me kind of catch us up just for a few minutes. And by the way, I promise I haven't like lost my train of thought. We're going to Passion Week and why this matters, why Passion Week matters. Is that the story starts off Genesis 1 where a creator does create the earth and it's perfect. And that creator is sovereign over creation. He creates it. He speaks into existence. He's the one calling the shots. But at the very end of the creative order, he does create 
these people called human beings, Adam and Eve. And it says they're created in the image of God. Now, whole books have been written on what that phrase means. It's too rich for us to dive into this morning. But one of the things it's referring to is in that culture, someone who was in the image of something was often in the image of a king, meaning they represented the king of a nation. And they were the steward then of that king's nation. They spoke on behalf of the king. They did stuff on behalf of the king, which makes sense because God goes to Adam and Eve and gives them the job of being stewards over the creation that he just created. You following me so far? Well, unfortunately, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And really, as Brady said, they rebelled against God and his authority by sinning. And at that moment, humanity's relationship with God was fractured because of their sin. And the world itself became fractured and broken. And all that I just said happens in the first three chapters of the book of the Bible. I mean, in the, in, the, in the book of Genesis in the Bible. Okay, so first three chapters, and then the real the question is: Okay, now what? Like, what's God doing about that? What's He going to do about that? And what we see then for the rest of the Bible, ultimately as Christians, is we believe the story of the Bible, which we believe is the story of history. It's not made up; it's the story of history. Ultimately, all leads to and points to Jesus. And so Jesus comes in the New Testament. If Again, if you're unfamiliar with kind of church and, and faith, awesome that you're here. Glad you're joining us. But um, what, what that looks like is the first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story of Jesus. And it's interesting that most of the 82 chapters of the Gospels are really all about the last three years of his life. So 82 chapters really focusing mostly on the final three years. But what's interesting is within that final three years, a third of the Gospels are focused on the final seven days of Jesus. And let me kind of now tie this all together. What this means is, is that if we want to have a sense of what God is doing and has done and how we can then respond to it and therefore like make our lives meaningful in the grand scheme of creation, we have to know who Jesus was and what he did, and that really is captured in the final seven days of his life in a beautiful and amazing way. So what we're going to do today is really focus on one part of who Jesus was. It's not all. We're going to do more this, uh, this Friday at a Good Friday service and then this Sunday at Easter Sunday services. We'll talk there more about his death and resurrection, but today we want to talk about his identity, specifically as a king. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bible, you can flip there. Uh, there's actually four different accounts of the triumphal entry. Some have different uh, emphasis of details than others, but all are sharing the same story. While you're flipping there, if you're wondering why do they call it Palm Sunday, because the palms are not going to be in our version. They're going to be in Luke 19. Um, palms were kind of the nationalistic symbol of the Jewish people at this time. So when they were waving palm branches and putting them down, it was basically their way of saying, this Jesus, as you'll see in a minute, he's the king and he's going to be the king of our nation. Okay, so that's kind of what Palm Sunday is about. But here's what's going on and why they would have been so excited about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, which is what triumphal entry is about. So the Passover was going on, huge celebration. Uh, Josephus, a first century historian, would, would pretty much tell us that the numbers of people in Jerusalem would go from just a few hundred thousand to over a million people that would gather in Jerusalem for Passover. And what Passover was, was a celebration of when God delivered his people, the Israelites, from their enemies and delivered them from the Egyptians. And so that's what they were celebrating. But in the context, they had a new oppressor, a new enemy, and that was the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire. And so the people were still in their own home nation. They were in Israel, they were in Jerusalem, but the Roman Empire had taken them over and occupied them. So as they're celebrating what God had done in the past when he delivered them from their enemies, they're looking to the present and the future 
and praying that God would send a king, a deliverer, a Messiah, as we often call him, that he would deliver them from Rome. And then all of a sudden, guess who starts riding into town? Jesus. And he's been going around doing miracles. He's just raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. So there's a lot of buzz that this could be the guy. And that's where we're going to pick up in Luke 19. If you could please stand with me as we read God's word together. Starting in verse 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be up on the screen. This is the word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you in, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down, to the, down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes? For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Jesus, we most need to hear from you, not from me. So I ask that we would hear from you. I ask that your words would just be so loud and so clear. Lord, if, if anything that is said is just of me, may it go to the ground and blow away and be remembered no more. But may your words remain this morning and may they change us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear from your word. Is your name that we pray. Amen. So really, the, the passage is pretty clear. Um, I was talking with some people last night at a birthday party, and they were asking kind of what I was preaching on. And I told them, I said, you know, the, the thing about this passage is, is it's really pretty clear, the meaning of the passage. It's Jesus is the king. In, in case you maybe didn't catch some of the allusions, I did think it'd be helpful for us to kind of get caught up on some of the ways that we saw that in this passage. Um, for example, there was a place where they set cloaks down. That was something that's alluding to the Old Testament, where uh, Jehu, who was a king when he was anointed, they put cloaks underneath his feet. So as they're putting cloaks on the donkey and then cloaks on there, it's kind of an allusion to, hey, this is a new king that's being enthroned. Um, when they, if you notice on the donkey that he didn't get up, what did it say? They set him on it. 
and the idea of like he's being enthroned. One of the clearest allusions that we see here is the idea of him riding into Jerusalem on what? A donkey, on a colt. Um, the other gospels really highlight the uh, reference pretty clearly, but here it doesn't uh, do it. But it really is referencing uh, Zechariah 9. We're going to put it on the screen for you. In Zechariah 9, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, the coming king. And it says this, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. So in other words, he's coming to bring peace and to end conflict. But look at this. He shall speak peace, not just to Jerusalem, but to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah is basically saying this coming king, this Messiah, this Christ will come and he'll rule over not just the Jewish people, but he will actually rule over the whole world. And as Jesus is coming in, they're saying, this is the guy, this is that king. And Jesus, because the actions he's taking, because he comes in riding on that donkey intentionally, you could kind of see him scripting out with the disciples, hey, make sure and find this. He has an intentional plan he has in his mind. And then when he comes in, the Pharisees say, hey, like Jesus rebuked them. They shouldn't be saying these things. He doesn't respond to it saying, okay, yeah, I will. He says, no, no. Like if they didn't, even the rocks would cry. In other words, he says, hey, I'm the guy. It's me. I'm the king. So the, 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 the meaning of the passage is really pretty clear. It's what I sometimes call the what. The what in my mind is like, hey, what, what is actually, what is the passage saying? What does it mean? That's very clear. I think so because of that, what I really want to spend a little bit more time on this morning is the so what. And I hope that doesn't sound like disrespectful, but what I mean is that it's like, okay, Jesus is king. And like, like okay, what, what does that change? What, what does that mean? What, really, what implications does that have for us? In the same way, let me put it like this. King Carl is the king of Sweden. That's his real name, by the way. It's Carl. That's just awesome, okay? King Carl. It sounds made up, but he really is the king of Sweden right now, okay? So, like, if I say King Carl is the king of Sweden, you're like, and? Like, it doesn't impact you because, A, you don't live in Sweden, and B, it just seems so far removed. And sometimes, like, when we talk about Jesus being king, that may be kind of how it feels for you. Like, I think a lot of us love the idea of Jesus being savior, because we feel the weight of our sin and our shame, and we love Jesus to save us from the consequences of our sin and the shame of our sin. We love Jesus being a great teacher, because like, hey, he can help me do life better and be a, be a better parent, be a better spouse, and so on and so forth. We love Jesus being a miracle worker, right? But Jesus being king sometimes feels a little bit different for us. And so I, I thought we'd be good to focus on like, okay, like, What's the so what about that? Like, what, what does it really mean for our lives? And so I want to cover four things. What does it really practically mean that Jesus is the king, not just of like the Jewish people, but of the whole universe? What does it mean that he's the king, practically speaking? Number two, um, why don't we like that? <laughs> or at least, why do a lot of us not like that, or at least resist it, okay? Number three, why shouldn't we resist it? Man, why should we want to embrace Jesus as a king? And then finally, I just want to end our morning basically, okay, here's two responses, Here's two ways that we can respond in light of all that. Okay, so what, number one, does it mean that Jesus is the king? Well, think about a king. Ultimately, whatever a king says happens. And really, whatever is under the realm of the king's authority, he gets to say how it goes and what happens and what doesn't happen because it's under the realm of his authority. Well, this begs the question for Jesus. If Jesus is saying, I am the king, and if he's the Christ, and he, as Zechariah says, is the king of the whole world, 
Well, then what's his realm? Uh, Colossians 1 tells us, Colossians 1.16 says, for by him, it's referring to Jesus, all things were created. That's a big statement. Not some things, not most things, all things were created in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus' realm is everything. So that's why when sometimes, you, if you come to Redeemer a lot, we talk about every square inch. It comes from a quote by a guy named Abraham Kuyper, where I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but basically there's not a square inch in all of the created realm that Jesus doesn't look at and say, mine, because Jesus created everything that we see and don't see. Everything is his. Now, this is true on a broad level, so in other words, like he, he's king over all the nations of the earth. In fact, um, there's this great quote from Marcy Sproul that I'm like, okay. I'm not the biggest quote guy, like Rob Betts' wheelhouse. I only try to put in one or two because I'm just not as much of a quote guy, but this was such a great one that I thought we should share it. R.C. Sproul says this, it is a profound political reality that Christ now occupies the supreme seat of cosmic authority. The kings of this world and all secular governments may ignore this reality, but they cannot undo it. The universe is no democracy. It is a monarchy. God himself has appointed his beloved son as the preeminent king. Jesus does not rule by referendum, but by divine right. And in the future, every knee will bow before him, either willingly or unwillingly. So what R.C. Sproul is referring to there is there's a passage in Philippians 2 where it talks about how one day every knee will bow before Jesus. And that includes the knee of every government, of every king, of every democracy, and all the political authority that is involved in that. Everyone is one day going to bow to Jesus if they are not now. So the idea that Jesus is king is true on a broad level, but it also is supposed to be true on a more personal level. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to show some diagrams I think would be helpful to get our minds around this. I'm going to show up the first one. If you can't read all the stuff, don't worry about it. I'll read it for you. But imagine this circle is your own individual life, okay? And within that circle, kind of like your sphere in a sense of authority and influence and everything, you have different elements like money, family, work, plans, friends, time, beliefs, politics. There's more things than we could have put in there as well. So basically, all the components and aspects of your life. And for each of these, really, ultimately, there's a throne in your life. We can kind of go to the next picture. There we go. So in other words, someone has to sit in the throne of your life who calls the shots about these things. Um, one way that I sometimes put it is what I call the decision. Who has the ultimate decision rights in your life? Saying, hey, at the end of the day, they get to make the final decision for how I spend or manage my money, for how I go about my work, for the friends that I have and my interactions with them, for the beliefs that I hold, for the way I practice politics. At the end of the day, there's got to be someone on the throne of your life who gets to call the shots. Okay. Now, most of us, if we're honest, function like it's us. We're on the throne. Don't, don't go to that slide yet. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the picture here that we're getting in this passage of Colossians and then also the idea of Jesus being king is that ultimately, let's go to that next slide. Jesus, if he is the king over every square inch of existence, including you and your life and every aspect of your life, ultimately he wants to call the shots and have the final decision rights over everything. Everything, like all the practical stuff of your life. See, a lot of times, sometimes 
we, we treat belief in Jesus like this abstract idea of beliefs about some kind of this abstract God, this way of like, no, like belief in Jesus as king actually should influence every little part of your life in a very practical way. Um, in the book of Acts, um, there were people that were responding to Jesus as being a king and they were repenting because they're saying, hey, we're no longer going to call the shots in our life. We're going to have Jesus call the shots in our lives. And these people, Acts 19 tells us, had been practicing magic and they did not feel like they could have Jesus as king and still do that. So they got all the books that they had used to practice magic with and they burned them. And it says that it amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver, which most scholars believed was basically each piece of silver was a day's wage. 50,000 days of wages they did it. Why? Because they said, hey, we no longer have authority over our own lives. Jesus does. And if he doesn't want us doing this, we'll make whatever sacrifice to keep him on the throne of our lives. So believe in Jesus as king is not just some theoretical thing. It has real life practical implications and applications. You follow me so far, okay? Now, but let's just be honest now. We don't like the idea of Jesus as king. Why? Let's go to the next picture. Because we like to be king and queen. Like, can we just say that out loud? Like, we want to call the shots in our lives. Like, we just do. If you don't believe me, my favorite example of this is driving. Okay, so... Maybe you're way more sanctified than me. But whenever I'm on the road, if you're driving faster than me, you're a maniac. If you're driving slower than me, you're annoying. And if you're driving the same speed as me, like alongside of me, dude, you are a jerk and you need to get away, away from me right now. Okay? So in other words, like basically what I'm saying is when I get on the road, it's all about me get out of my way. In fact, it's better if you just stayed at home. Okay? I know you're way more sanctified than me. When someone is riding your tail, you're like, oh, man, I should get over out of their way. You know? No. Like, ultimately, we all want to be calling the shots of our own lives. So why is that? Some of it, I spend a little bit more time on this than the nine. I'm going to save us some time. Some of it, I think we can't say, we live in a democracy, right? And, and that's a good thing, by the way. Like, it is great to live in a nation where our authorities derive their authority from our consent. And they don't force it on us. If you don't think that's a good thing, like, go and visit places in Ukraine right now that are still occupied by a foreign oppressor. It is a great thing that we live in a democracy, but um, sometimes what living in a democracy can lead us is to what Stanley Harawas says is the belief that everyone is their own tyrant. So in other words, like, because think of it, I mean, every year we celebrate when we got rid of a tyrant at 4th of July, right? It's like we blow up stuff and we eat bratwurst and steaks and hamburgers on the same plate. It's never socially acceptable to do that at any other time of the year. But we gorge ourselves with food and blow stuff up because we're basically saying, yay for when we overthrew a king. Okay, that, that's what the 4th of July is. So, man, that's awesome. But the danger is sometimes we can think that, oh, now I get to be the tyrant. I get to call the shots. And the problem that can create with Jesus is Jesus does not run on a democracy. He doesn't take like a, 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 an opinion poll of how she should run the universe. He does whatever he wants to do. And so sometimes I think that's the thing that'd be a little hard, but let's just be honest. We don't want Jesus to be king because we do. And because of that, we are cosmic usurpers of his authority. That's a big statement, but it's just the truth. Um, I think I've got a great quote from uh, John Stott. This is the other quote I told you I was going to put in here. Cross of Christ, one of the best books I could ever recommend to you. Like, if you're a reader, I would knock it out this week. It's just so profound and amazing. But this is what John Stott says in The Cross of Christ. We resent his intrusions into our privacy, his demand for our homage, his expectations of our obedience. Well, why can't he just mind his own business? 
we ask petulantly and leave us alone. To which he instantly replies that we are his business and he will never leave us alone. So we too perceive him as a threatening rival, just like the people in Jesus' time did, who disturbs our peace, he upsets our status quo, undermines our authority, and diminishes our self-respect. So if we could just all be honest here for a little bit this morning, we don't like the idea of Jesus being king because it gets us off the throne and puts someone else on it. Okay. So let's just own that, right? It's just part of it. Let's just be honest about it. Now, now, why should we like the idea, though, of Jesus being king? In other words, like, like, what could we do to convince ourselves that, hey, that's actually probably best for us if like, we got off the throne of our lives and tried, stopped trying to run everything in our lives and make all the decisions, said just let Jesus have control of everything. I want to highlight two things for us this morning of why we should let Jesus be king. Number one, his character. And number two, his mission. So his character as a king and his mission as a king. I think we resist the idea of a king and we resist the idea of someone being authority over us because we've seen really bad examples of it because we've seen people who were oppressors and who were tyrants. And so sometimes our perspective authority can be skewed by that. But we have to remember that Jesus has the best character. Jesus is not an oppressor. He's not coming in to rule your life with an iron rod saying, ah, you are not, my goal is to make you unhappy. (laughs) Think about in the book of Matthew, Jesus comes to people and he says, come to me. All ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus cares about his subjects. He wants to be on the throne of their lives, not to domineer over them, but to do it for their good. Think also about how he entered Jerusalem. Um, and contrast that with maybe how he, a different person entered Jerusalem at the same time. I referenced earlier of how the numbers of people would swell um, in Jerusalem. It's like a few million strong. And so because of that, guess what? Rome would see that, and they saw that as a threat. Because like, here's a few million people gathered in one place. They were celebrating God's deliverance um, from their uh, oppressors. And they're thinking, okay, they're going to be tempted to overrule and overthrow us. So around the time of Passover, every year, uh, a group of Roman soldiers would mount horses and they would march into the city as a show of power. Basically as a way of reminding all the people there to say, hey, if you get any ideas, we'll end you right now. So they came as people that were on the throne that were people that were calling the shots in their lives, but not with the intent for their good, basically say, if you try to rise up against us, we'll end you right now. So they come in riding on horses. And by the way, the guy who would have done it in the year that Jesus came in riding on a donkey was a man named Pontius Pilate. So Pilate would have come in in this display of force saying, don't mess with us. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey saying, I bring peace. He's such a good character as a king. But let's also talk about his mission as a king. What did Jesus come into Jerusalem to do? This is where we got to be careful because we we don't want to separate Palm Sunday from Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We've got to keep it all together. Well, he came in to deliver his people from their enemies, but they thought their greatest enemy was Rome, and actually that wasn't their greatest enemy. The greatest enemy of the Jewish people, and when he rode into Jerusalem, is the same as our greatest enemy, sin and death. Like at the end of the day, here's what all of us have in common. We have all sinned 
And because of that, we deserve to be punished by the creator that we have sinned against because we are rebelling against his authority. So scripture tells us that one day after we die, and that death is the, is the consequence of our sin, we will die, and the book of Hebrews says, and then after we die, we will stand before God in judgment. The two greatest enemies of our world and of our lives is our sin because it separates us from God and it deserves God's wrath and it's death. And so think about what Jesus accomplished. On Friday, he goes to the cross where he does what? Receives the punishment for our sins in our place and he defeats sin in its power. And then what does he do on Sunday? He rises from the grave doing what? Defeating death. So Jesus' mission as a king is not one of being a tyrannical oppressor. It's a liberator. He comes to liberate us. And, and it just blew my mind. Yesterday, I was, I was walking around and just listening to some music and praying. I just, I'll just be honest. It's funny. Like Rob did this last week. I did this this week. Maybe it's just like this thing that we're all doing right now. I just started like weeping when I was walking around like outside weeping. Just Because here's the thought that came in my head. It's like Jesus knew what he was coming to do. Like, it's not like he went into Jerusalem, like, hey, I'm going to be king. And then all of a sudden he gets crucified and he's like, I didn't see that coming. Like, like all throughout the gospels, three times he had predicted his death. He told his disciples, hey, I'm going to go into Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. I'm going to go into Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. Like three times he tells this to him. He knew what he was doing and yet he did it anyways. And like, think of it, in Colossians, it says that all things that were created through Jesus and for Jesus, which meant that he created the tree that was turned into the cross. And he created the hand that fashioned the nails that were then put through his legs and through his wrist. It meant that he gave people the breath that they then used to mock him. And in spite of all of that, on the cross, what does he cry out? Father, forgive them. This blows my mind. That's the king. That's Jesus. And, and just like he looks at the very subjects who are just loyal to him and say, no, 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 I'm going to continue to sit on the throne of my life. You can't have it. And he says, I love you and I'm going to die for you anyways. And you know what? He looks at you and me and he says the same thing now 2,000 years later. Who else would you want to rule over your life? Who else would you want to rather call the shots of your life than the one who creates you, who sustains you, and who died for you? and who rose that you could rise as well. What an incredible king. Amen. Can we just say that? Incredible. Okay. Now, that being said, okay, what are our responses? Like, how can we respond to that? Well, there's really only two ways. You can reject him as your king, or you can receive him. And you actually, like, see this in, in the passage. There's people that um, receive him and welcome him as king, and then there's those that reject him, like the Pharisees. Then I just want to dive into this for a few minutes and kind of the options and what that leaves us with. So one thing is you could reject Jesus' authority and his kingdom. And what that means is, is that you could then enjoy life as much as you possibly can here. Like you could say, no, Jesus, I still want to call the shots in my life. I still, we don't have to put it back on the screen, but I still want to be in the throne of my life. I want to call the shots. I'm going to reject it. So here's what I'd say is you could do that. And what that means is for the rest of your life, you can try to enjoy it as much as you possibly can. I'm going to be honest and say, I don't know that you could enjoy it the way you could with Jesus because you're going to be lacking fullness of joy and love and peace. But so you could do it. 
And by the way, some people do do it. Like sometimes I laugh because sometimes Christians can talk about non-believing Christian, uh, non-Christians, non-believers, and like, oh, their lives are just always so miserable. They must be. I know plenty of non-Christians who are just fine. They're happy. They're content. But here's the thing: is enjoy it for as long as you can because it will not last forever. Because here's the reality: we're about to get into, I'll say, scary stuff. If you reject Jesus as your King. Live it up, do as much as you can to enjoy this life. Just know it won't go on forever because one day, because of your sin, you will die. And you will stand then before Jesus. And it will not, it'll be the same Jesus, but it will not be like the Jesus in this triumphal entry. It'll be the Jesus of the second one. Here's what I mean by that. In the book of Revelation, there's a second triumphal entry that a lot of people, well, they don't know about it. They just never connect the dots. There's two triumphal entries in the Bible. One is when Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king. He comes in peace, offering salvation through his death and then his resurrection. The second one, though, is when all things come to an end. And here's how Revelation describes it. We'll have it on the screen in case you don't want to flip there. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the book of John, guess who's the Word? It's Jesus. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you can reject Jesus as king, but one day you'll have to face him at the second triumphal entry and then receive justice for that. And I go, wait a second, this, this, Paul, you're just talking about like, the character of Jesus, and he's like, this doesn't seem to, to go with that. A, a couple things in this. Number one, Jesus is not sitting up in heaven or sitting before us like, just like, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> like, he's not like, you just let me at him right now. That's not, because think about it. Um, we haven't gone back there yet, but I was planning to right now. Like, I read after Jesus' entry about that place where he's then approaching Jerusalem. Did you catch what he did? He wept. Why did he weep? Because there were so many people in it who were rejecting him as their rightful king. And he didn't say, all right, now I get to go punish him. He weeps. Why does he weep? Because he starts talking about how one day all the stones are going to be destroyed. And that's referring to in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed the city. And he's basically saying, if you had only received me as your king, you could have avoided that. And here's what I'd say is when Jesus looks at us 2,000 years later, he looks ahead to the punishment that is coming our way for rejecting him. And he's not thinking, oh, I can't wait. He's thinking, if you would only receive me as your king, you don't have to have that. And even like 2 Peter 3, um, it says this in referring to Jesus' second coming and referring to his second triumphal entry. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient toward you. Why? In other words, why isn't Jesus coming back in the second triumphal entry where he is going to bring justice on those who will not submit to him? Here is why. He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, he's like, I, 
when I come back, I'm coming back to put everything right. But that also means I have to deal with everything that's wrong, including the people who will not submit to me. And he says, I'm putting that off so that they would have more time to repent. Sometimes I just, I don't want us to get a picture of Jesus like saying like, oh, I can't wait to get all these. He wants salvation for us. The reality is we get to choose which triumphal entry we get to celebrate and enjoy. If you receive Jesus' authority, you get to receive everything he came into Jerusalem to win for you. We'll get to that here in a minute. If you reject it, you have then to get the second triumphal entry, which is where you have to receive the consequences for you being on the throne of your own life. Now, I wanted to end on a more... I don't want to say positive, no, but kind of like, hey, let's end, it's a triumphal entry, so let's end more triumphant. Well, so that's what happens if you reject Jesus as your king. Well, what do you get if you receive him? Well, hey, if you reject Jesus as your king, you know what? You live as best as you can now, but you won't get to enjoy it forever. Guess what? If you receive Jesus' authority, you get to enjoy all that he won for you now and for forever. What did he win for you? Well, he won your salvation on the cross and in the resurrection. He won you eternal life, but also, um, we often talk about the Lord's Prayer. You remember our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name? Well, there's this interesting line that says this, your kingdom come, king, king, kingdom, king, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, when we get off the throne of our own lives and put Jesus on the throne of our lives, we get to begin living the life of heaven here and now imperfectly for sure because even like i'm sure as we've been talking through this like man there's some areas where i'm still trying to call the shots of my own life and hey the beautiful thing is it was because of the cross on good friday and east and then the resurrection eastern sunday you can get off the throne now and be forgiven but guess what the rest of our christian lives is progressively saying jesus i want you calling the shots i want to live more the life of heaven here on earth that comes as you have complete authority over my life we get to start that now and then go on forever So those are our choices. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to lead us in a time of prayer. And like, okay, like how do we all wrap this up? How do we respond to this? Like, number one, let's say this. If you have already like received Jesus as Savior and as your King, a, a couple things. Maybe you are in a place where you're like, okay, like I've tried to get back on the throne. Or maybe you're like trying to share the throne with Jesus a little bit. Doesn't work. I've tried it. Like, but like maybe that's what you're, like, hey, this is a moment. Here's the beautiful thing about being a believer in Jesus and having salvation, it's like, man, Jesus still loves you. He died specifically for the places where you're still have, trying to have control. Repent, give him the throne back, okay? But also I'd say this, I just want to challenge all of us who have already accepted Jesus' lordship, his kingship. Here's my challenge for us this week, this Passion Week, this Holy Week. Let's now go into this week mindful and worshipful and just in awe and in joy of Jesus and what he accomplished this week. I wrote down this thought, of, like, I think it was funny, I'm, I looked back and saw Corbin earlier in the back um, when he was leading us for, I think it was the Ash Wednesday service, which kicks off Lent, the season that we've been in, and now we're coming to the last week of it. I wrote down this sentence, I was in the back, and I remember it just hit me, I'm like, wait a second, because I knew I was preaching the triumphal entry, and you just start jotting down notes when they come to you, um, by the way. So here's what I wrote down, I said, if a triumphant king is coming into your city, you only welcome him joyfully if you see him as your liberator. <laughs> if he's coming in to oppress you, you don't welcome him. But if he's coming as your liberator and you're a slave to something else, then you welcome him. Guess what? We were all slaves to sin. And Jesus died on the cross to free us from that. And so this week, worship him as a liberated subject.
of the king. If there's those of you in here, though, that you're in a really a totally different group, that maybe you've never surrendered to Jesus as your king, here's what I want you to know. He longs to bring you peace. He longs to bring you salvation. He longs for you to rest. He longs to rescue you from that coming judgment that we talked about earlier from the book of Revelation. That's why he went to the cross. You really have two options. Jesus can receive that punishment for you or you can receive it. He died so that he could be the one who received it for you. So this morning, if you haven't submitted to that yet, right now say, Jesus, I'm done calling the shots. I'm done being in control. I want you to be the king of my life. And what I want you to know is the second you do that, he's also then the savior of your life as well.